Do you want me to tell you about how Mike and I met? Yeah, please do. A friend of mine from OT school actually um, was working with Mike and said, you know, you guys should really meet. And if you don't date, you will get along famously. That's Allison Christensen. And at her friend's suggestion, she went on a date with this guy, Mike. That was a lot of fun. I wanted to take her to the museum that had these uh, butterflies be released every hour and I in my in my head there was thousands and thousands of butterflies and they they, they essentially brought out a a uh, a cage and there was one butterfly in it and the gentleman came out opened the gate and one flew out <laughs> I refer Just to like it as that. a poof it was like <laughs> three butterflies and that was the extent of the so that yeah that was a big part of our first date and um have had an amazing time ever since This is Voices of Duke Health. I'm Karishma Sriram. Allison and Mike got married in 2011, and things were going great. They bought and renovated their dream house. They went to Hawaii. They went camping and hiking as much as possible. And then things changed. I have had um, a condition called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation since I was a small child. In fact, I remember having these little flutters in my heart as a kid and kind of thinking, I'm not sure, not sure if I want to tell anyone about this because I might need a heart transplant. Oh. <laughs> so um, I actually didn't tell anyone for a really long time. And then I had been to see a cardiologist and they were not able to identify anything because every time they put the event monitor on and nothing happened. Like, you know, when you take your car to the shop and it doesn't make that noise. Um, so I found myself in my... 20s working in the hospital and I uh, had an episode of AFib and I went to the emergency department and I asked them to run an EKG right away so that we could send that to my cardiologist, which they did. And he said, oh yeah, this is AFib and that's about all we can tell you because the structure of your heart is normal. We don't see any kind of pathology or anything that would indicate cause that we can point to for why this is happening. Um, so the, the good thing about that was that we were able to develop like a, a protocol. So it was still very unpredictable about when it would happen and why it would happen. But having that here's what to do when it does happen was very comforting. And it made the whole we don't know piece of it a little bit more manageable. So was this around the time that you had met Mike or was this pre-Mike? Yes, yeah, so um, Allison had mentioned to me when we were dating that she had some heart issues, and it really was never an issue. And then when she had the events, she would have AFib, and it wouldn't go away. And so I, I was so nervous. I mean, I had never met anybody with a heart condition, and she had to get a cardio version, and I didn't know what that was. And so I, you know, I'm very analytical, and so I look it up, and she had a cardio version while while we were dating and I had to watch her get cardioverted and it was it was very scary. So ever since that happened I kind of have this low level anxiety about you know do you have like palpitations and I think I've, I've scared her a little bit because I think that I I worry a little too much and, and so she might not tell me <laughs> all the times that she <laughs> might be having heart palpitations or other issues. Um, you know, I, it gives me concern because I love her very much and I don't I obviously don't want anything bad to happen. One of the things that shocked me about 
I don't mean that as a pun, but it comes out that way. (laughs) About Mike's experience was that that cardioversion happened with him in the room. And I think the one, one of the things that I've really drawn from this experience is how difficult it is for patients and families who are really standing by and just watching, right? And, and it's almost, in, in many ways, I believe, more difficult than it is for the person in the bed because that sense of loss of control is just so acute. And it's just really watching things happen to someone that you love. And, and that really occurred to me when Mike told me that he had been in the room for that cardioversion. I was almost, I was really shocked by that. I thought, oh gosh, I want him to be protected. So I guess you guys were doing well um, all the way up until 2013. So what, what changed in 2013? Well, uh, I had actually just gotten back from a trip visiting a friend in Chicago, and I remember it was March, and I, I came home, and I think it was possibly the next day or two after I got back, and I went into AFib, and I always have that oh no moment in my brain because I know we have like a certain amount of time where it's, it's going to convert or it's not, and if it's not, then I have to go into the protocol and we have to talk about a cardioversion and those are all things that you know you prefer to avoid uh, but I did in fact call my team and just said hey I need to come in tomorrow and so we we scheduled that appointment and we went to sleep and intending to wake up very early the next morning um, and maybe I should let Mike pick up the story because that's kind of where I fade out in terms of consciousness <laughs> So yeah, I, I woke up at 3.45 and Allison was making a very strange noise and she was blue. And I immediately jumped out of bed. I was super scared, but I thought it was a stroke because that's what I had read about the risks of AFib. So ran to the phone, called 911, and they kind of talked me through checking her airways, um, looking at her mouth to make sure there was nothing obstructing it. And honestly, inside of two minutes or so, um, the emergency personnel were at the front door. So uh, that was such a, a blessing. Um, and so they did what they needed to do, uh, uh, trying to revive her. They were not able to. And they took her to the hospital very quickly. And it was just very intense. That I think that I got a little bit of shell shock from all the alarms going off all the time because every one of them, I was like, is she okay? Is she okay? I think the toughest thing for me was calling her parents and not really knowing what's going on. And it's, you know, it's 420. It's not a lot later, right? Because it happened very fast and having to wake her dad up and mom up and, and tell them that I really didn't know if she was going to be okay because they couldn't say that. They said that she had an arrest. They're trying to do to cool her down and she'll be in a coma. But beyond that, they, they try to be careful about not promising things. She had not been breathing, right? So for a while they say, well, in only a few minutes you can die from that. So I, I was really scared that we might lose her. Um, it was it was like a lonely moment, and then it gets into 4.30 and 4.45, and I'm just sitting there, and um, just really scared, really scared for her, her well-being and, and not really knowing what to do. What did your support system look like for as long as this was going on? I was very lucky. So her support system sprang into action. Her family came up as quickly as they could. She has a very um, strong uh, relationship with her best friend growing up. 
um, who came up and brought some of her stuffed animals to put in her bed. Mm. And uh, they came to visit. And so uh, very fond memories of hanging out at our little house with her, her entire family. In and fact, we have good, a good f- couple of good photos of that, of everyone sitting at our dining room table and eating a meal. And I was in the hospital at the time, so I wasn't there. But what a source of comfort to see that there's fellowship, right, and that people are taking care of each other. It was just awesome. Yes, it was awesome. They were amazing, and we had a good time there. And then I'm very lucky. I have five uh, buddies in Durham that we get together every week for 10 years. We're called the Boneyard, and we just joke around (laughs) every Sunday night. And we're there thick and thin, and so they sprang into action and helped as well. They helped at home. They helped shop. They helped kind of relay information. So we felt very lucky to have support like that. I remember so many stories from the ICU waiting room because it's such an intense area. Um, there was a gentleman who had a, a son who was in probably his 20s who had some sort of heart failure and he was so worried about his son and he was also just very worried about, he's a truck driver and he didn't make money when he was driving um, and his son didn't have insurance and I ended up talking to him many times and, and we shared some stories. He was a very nice man and that was one of many stories in the time we were there. I think there are a number of other families in the ICU. How did that help you, or did it help you, process at all what was going on with Allison? That's a great question. It helped me a uh, a lot. The ICU is for, you know, the sickest patients. There's families that are coming in in the middle of the night. There's uh, people that have been there for weeks. And so they're vulnerable, they're nervous, and they're open about talking about things. And it was an opportunity to feel grateful depending on what your, where your situation was. And it was an opportunity to kind of listen to someone else or to bend someone else's ear kind of in a way where the person would understand because they're there too for a very serious reason. Yeah, sort of that idea of fellowship again. Having some of that external support is so huge, really. Yeah, and it's amazing that you had that with people that you knew very well, but also with complete strangers. I think that that's really beautiful that you were able to have that opportunity to bond with them. So then fast forward a little to when Allison woke up. What were you thinking? You must have been overjoyed. (laughs) I was so relieved and so happy. Um, So she woke up around Easter. Her whole family was there. We went to church and we just felt this incredible relief where there's a lot that is still yet to be known. Um, But she was awake. So that was momentous a momentous day for us and um she was a little drugged out when she first she first woke up so <laughs> rightfully it was, so <laughs> it was like a moment she might not remember vividly because uh, she was probably very groggy but yeah we were all very 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 happy yeah i think my first memory was the speech therapist and greeting me with some meat slurry like t- doing a <laughs> swallowing test for me oh yeah you know the puree <laughs> diet right and i was like oh this is one of my people <laughs> and I know what this is all about, this swallowing test. <laughs> and it was awful. Don't ever eat a pureed dinner roll. It's not, not good. Uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> um, okay, so that was your first memory yeah. of being awake. Yeah. What else do you remember from that kind of first day that you woke up? Honestly, not, not a lot. But I, I will say that when I think back to that, what I think about is this enormous sense of safety. I felt 
not only surrounded by the people that I loved, but I had all, all kinds of physicians and, you know, PAs and nurses and social workers and everyone coming in and taking a lot of time to explain what they could to prepare me for what might be coming next and to make sure that I felt comfortable with it. And honestly, it just, I'm so grateful for that, you know, because it's a confusing time to try to understand, you know, what has happened and um, what, what are all the events that I wasn't awake for. So I'm just immensely grateful for that. I think that was a real gift. I remember coming home and looking under our bed and seeing the cast-offs from the EMTs, like the tourniquet and the rubber stoppers for the syringes, they were all just under the bed. And so we had gotten to the point where we were like, okay, we're on level ground, and then you see something like that, and it's all just back, and you're like, mm. wow, this happened, and here's evidence of it in my bedroom. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing, too, is just that you process these things and you internalize them and you and it's part of your story but then you keep being surprised by it this thing happened to me probably a year or two after this event this hospitalization I discovered that my car had been broken into and and some things had been taken from my car and so I called the police and I just said hey just want to report this not a big deal but I'm assuming that you track these things just wanted you to know well they sent an officer out which is not at all what I uh, anticipated, but he came to the house and he looked at me with this sort of surprised and intense look on his face. And he said, did you have a heart thing a few years ago? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm the officer that responded to that call. And he said, I've driven by here a few times and I've seen you in the yard and I wondered if it was you. He said, because I'm the person that drove your husband to the hospital when you were in the back of the ambulance. And he said, I am so glad that I ran into you because I, we never get to see what happens to people after that. You know, from the caregiver perspective, the first responders, you know, this message of gratitude is so key. You know, there are people I know around Duke that are doing work with that, and I just think it's so critical and so important that people know how grateful we are and that we're okay because of them. And so I just think that was really like one of those, I don't know, maybe heaven sent kinds of moments. It was really incredible. Thank you guys again for coming to join us. I really appreciate um, how vulnerable and open you both were. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's Thank you great so much. to be able to, to share and express our thanks to the Duke community. If you like what you just heard, we hope it'll spur your own conversations. Ask a friend what inspires them or what they're grateful for. And let us know if you would like to record a conversation in our listening booth. Visit www.listeningbooth.info to learn more. Voices of Duke Health was created by Anton Zeiker and Jonathan Bay. The show is produced by Susanna Robertson. Theme music was composed by William Dawson, musician-in-residence at Duke University Hospital and produced, arranged, performed, and recorded by Mark Simonson and Jack Fleischman. 
Additional music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to Duke Institute for Health Innovation for making this podcast possible. <laughs>